Hello, this is Randy Sutton. Welcome to another episode of The Voice for American Law Enforcement. I'm a retired law enforcement lieutenant with 34 years of police service, the author of A Cop's Life and the soon-to-be-released, I've got to tease you a little bit, <laughs> the soon-to-be-released Rescuing 911, The Fight for America's Safety. And I'm also the founder of The Wounded Blue, the National Assistance and Support Organization for Injured and Disabled Law Enforcement Officers. On this show, we talk about all things law enforcement. Uh, we talk about the news, but we also have interesting guests each week. And I have an interesting, actually, I'm going to surprise you. I have two interesting guests this week, totally different topics. Uh, my first is I'm going to introduce Joelle Kaplan. Joelle is the wife of a, a severely injured law enforcement officer. And uh, she's going to talk to you about, um, about the, the travails that are facing uh, injured law enforcement officers from, uh, from the uh, methodologies employed by police departments all over the country when it comes down to workers' compensation issues. And she's going to tell you from uh, a point of view that is, that is uh, very personal and um, and sometimes a little difficult to, to talk about. Joelle, thanks for joining me here on The Voice for American Law Enforcement. Randy, thank you for the opportunity and the platform and for getting uh, some exposure to a systemic problem, not only within Metro, but uh, nationwide, um, within law enforcement and the workers' compensation um, courts and programs that they have. So I'm going to, you know, the uh, this is a topic that, is not a, shall we say a sexy topic, right? <laughs> when you're when you're you don't you don't see this on the news, right? Because it's 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 so involved, but yet it's affecting the lives of law enforcement officers all over this nation. Now, uh, for my viewers and my listeners, you know that I am the founder of an organization uh, that is a nationwide charity that helps injured and disabled officers all across the country. And that's how our paths crossed. Was uh, you know you are the you're the wife of a, of a, a, a police detective uh, with Las Vegas Metro PD, and uh, and I've been following what's been going on with with the um, the issues involving your husband. And of course, then you complicate it with the the scourge of COVID. Right. And I mean, it becomes it becomes a, a serious serious issue. So let's talk about. Um, what happened, first of all, your husband has been with the police department for how long? For 14 years and uh, last four years as a detective in uh, violent crimes. And he uh, was, a, um, he was, uh, uh, a, had, had exposure to COVID, but it's really not known how that exposure occurs. Because let's face it, folks, who the hell knows where we get it? And, and, and I want to mention this, that this is really an important issue, that the, the Department of Justice, the Federal Department of Justice, has ruled that any COVID death is automatically presumed to be a line-of-duty death. So that, if you extrapolate that a little bit, that means any exposure to COVID is, is presumed to be, but when, we, when I say presumed to be, that's not the reality, is it? So let's Indeed. talk about your journey and and what is what happened uh, with you. So uh, Darren's uh, last day of work was December eighth of last year, um, and on the 9th or tenth of December, he already started to um, exhibit some symptoms, but things that we could definitely justify that scratchy throat, you know, a little bit of a cough. There was nothing substantial 
We had not, he worked through the pandemic with multiple scares, having interviewed or arrested um, individuals uh, that end up testing positive for COVID. And we, um, we had a system in place to be healthy and safe. Um, so we never suspected COVID. Uh, so he worked on the 8th and his RDOs were the 9th, 10th, and the 11th. And we had a scheduled vacation from the 11th through, I believe, the 21st or the 20th of let me December. Just, let me just translate that. RDOs, regular days off. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. So um, we were actually in Florida, in the state of Florida, uh, when Darren officially got diagnosed on the 13th of December. So worked the last day of the 8th and officially got diagnosed on the 13th. Um, I subsequently tested positive on the 14th, and we uh, were we were down. It was hard. We we both we were fighting over who was getting the mucinex um, for bedtime. It, we were in dire straits. Um, we made it back to uh, Vegas, um, and on the 19th and on the 21st, my husband I called 911 and had my husband transported to the hospital. Uh, his pulse ox was 67, he had this gray hue, um, everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong for us. Wow. And so he spent seven days in the hospital. And as one would expect when you get released from the hospital, you anticipate this recovery and you get better. You're not in the hospital and that it was the polar opposite for my husband. He got worse and um, we started the workers comp process um, about four weeks after his diagnosis um, because we knew that he was not getting better and there was no possible way that he could work and he, he, there were so many symptoms outside of the physical cough and breathing issues. Now he's got these cognitive deficiencies um, that he did not have. And I should probably preface by saying that in late October, Darren went for his annual physical um, through the department and he got his gold star and, and everything was great and off to work he went. So there were no issues prior to December 8th. So we start the process of workers comp and um, it's a grueling process. Not only are you trying to maintain positivity and empowerment and breathe some life into my husband who now has all these ailments um, because of COVID. It was declared that way by the attending physician at the hospital that this was a COVID issue, you know, sustained from work. But then the, there's no way that he can work and the department um, has these um, statues in place or the, the state of Nevada has these statues in place that protect these officers that the workers comp system is not acknowledging. They're, my husband is entitled to many benefits under NRS 617.455, which the workers comp system and the courts have totally negated and ignored this system. All right, so so I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you there for a moment because this is where we get into the weeds that are sometimes difficult to sure. understand. So for the for the watchers and the viewers and the and the listeners here, there every every police agency has a system where if you get injured in the line of duty or you get sick 
from an exposure in the line of duty because before there was COVID, there's been tuberculosis, there's been uh, uh, HIV. Mm -hmm. There's always been the possibility of exposure to get ill Correct. in law enforcement. So um, uh, the COVID is just one more, uh, you know, uh, exposure. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the system has been in place, and the and what is required of the officer is that they fill out a quote exposure or workers compensation claim that says here's what happened and they and you put that in and then it goes into the system quote unquote mm -hmm. which is both an internal uh, system within the agency and then an external system Correct. which are, are is in actuality an insurance company slash third-party administrator which mm -hmm. actually administers the medical sense. compensation stuff. <clears throat> so the system itself is very complicated. So you, so you guys filled out the paperwork. We did. We you submitted it. Mm -hmm. And then you needed more treatment. Correct. We submitted a worker's comp claim because we knew Darren was not fit to go back into his duties as a detective. Uh, he was breathing his breathing was incapacitated uh, his pulmonary function test said that his lung capacity was working at 41 percent he's got the lungs of a 65 year old and he's, he's 52. there were there were, there was so much medical documentation two pulmonologists swore through their affidavits that uh COVID is a disease of the lungs and therefore darren should be covered under the nevada statute uh, okay so i'm going to stop you there too so once again, you know this this is a this is a difficult topic to explain, um, especially in a limited period of time. But um, the state of Nevada, like many other states, has a presumption: any law enforcement officer or firefighter that gets a lung disease mm -hmm. or a heart disease by statute it is presumed that that is a workers' compensation injury, Correct. and as such, it's just like if you got shot that you go get the medical treatment and the department pays for it. Correct. And if you cannot go back to work, then there is a system in place, um, an inadequate system, I might add, for, for giving you uh, disability compensation. And so you, you realized that his symptoms were so severe and he's not getting better. Correct. And, and the, 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 the disease of the lung is what really incapacitated him. Indeed. And the, he, he acquired this disease of the lungs through COVID. Um, so the system now is designed to deny, delay, and obfuscate. So they deny your claim, they delay through this atrocious system they have in place that does not work for the benefit of anyone who is injured, a police officer, um, and they're not acknowledging nor are they recognizing that COVID indeed is a disease of the lungs, therefore entitlement to workers' compensation and those benefits is appropriate. So what that means in, in, in plain English is that they just denied the claim. Indeed. They just said, uh, oh, you mean that, that lung disease? Um, we don't recognize that, 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 that we have to pay for that. Exactly, and under the statute, um, conclusively presumed are two very vital words. And what the department is saying, or, or the system is saying, well, you need to prove where you got that 
bring in the person that you were exposed by while you were working and we will at that point you know determine if you are eligible for workers compensation which is a, which is an absolute outrage mm -hmm. so they denied that they denied the claim they denied it how did Indeed. this affect you guys first of all how did it make you feel about the department i am blue line through and through they will forever be our family however it mars your feelings when you don't get the support that you expect from the department and a lot of that has to do with the policies that are in place with the department they are not uh, able to be vocal um, which is why I told my husband sit back and breathe all I need you to do is breathe and let me be the voice here so that we can invoke change and make a difference and start the path of fixing this broken system but it, it not only am I worried about my husband's health but my husband is the breadwinner um, he starting from December uh, 8th um, luckily for 14 years he banked bonus vacation and sick pay and so we exhausted those hours now I want to explain that again to to the viewers and and listeners what she is referring to is now if this is a workers comp claim they accept if they quote accepted the claim unquote then this is a workers compensation issue so the vacation and sick time that you build up as a police officer you don't use that this is correct. this is because it's considered an on-the-job um, injury correct so they deny it which means that instantly it's like money coming out of your pocket Indeed. and it and at some point when you exhaust your vacation time and sick time you don't even get paid no they once you've exhausted and and for 14 years Darren built up this bank of ours um, and that's what we've lived on since December 8th and I'm fortunate that we had that resource and that my husband had those hours banked otherwise I don't know how we would have survived and our his hours have are, are just running um, out now and we it, it brings an extra an added stress and now our stresses are mounted, you know, not only my husband's health and the doctors, but now where's, where is the money coming to survive, just to, to live, to survive, to pay our bills, to um, pay the doctors. Um, I mean, we have mounting medical bills because we don't have an accepted workers' compensation claim. Right. And so this is really critical information as well. So um, the, the, the workers' comp people have the ultimate power here they do to simply deny a claim mm -hmm. now this th this began in december we are in august mm -hmm. what human being what family can possibly sustain living under these circumstances N none that i know of none that i know of either this is this is and 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 let me say ladies and gentlemen i want i i asked you all to be on this show because you need to hear from somebody who has been affected by it. Uh, my story, is when, when uh, I had a stroke in my police car, which ended my career, I went through the exact same thing. But 
it was me all right now she's got a family she's got a husband that she's trying to support and the police agency and the system itself is is working against the officer now let me ask you this um you know right now let's say where we are right now he has now been um uh deemed fully incapacitated and 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 disabled correct so he is now a considered a disabled police officer and at this point um uh there are negotiations underway to get him his disability now i want to explain what that means in terms of reality to the viewers and listeners okay every state has its own laws when it comes down to disability and workers compensation for instance if you if this same situation happened in new york city that officer would be adjudged disabled all the bills would be paid and he would receive 66.6 percent of his salary or her salary for the rest of their life plus medical um tax-free for the rest of their life correct okay so if you're making if you're making a hundred thousand dollars a year as a police officer you're going to get that sixty six thousand six hundred and you're going to be able to live you're going to be able to survive is it the best hell no but it's certainly livable absolutely here in the state of nevada while the law says you get 66.6 percent somehow the state legislator capped that so the most that you can get if you're 100 disabled you can't work anymore is forty six thousand dollars a year now if you have one year on the job and you don't get any pension who the hell can live on forty six thousand dollars a year but that is another part of the inequity and Absolutely. and the fight that has to continue um in in your husband's case he's got 14 years on the job so he is eligible for a 14-year retirement correct from the department which at least would help help indeed live absolutely it's you're not you're certainly not going to get rich on this definitely not we're, we're going to be able to live is exactly what it is not anything more than it, we have to find a new normal uh but as long as i have my husband and he's breathing we will adapt to um this difference in our life um my primary goal is to keep my husband alive and to start educating and invoking a change because the system is so broken and along the way it takes victims who remain silent and upon being vocal on social media outlets my facebook a lot of the um metro wives groups uh, you know my story is out there about my husband and you hear these comments about people just need to come out and talk. These officers need to come out and, and speak about it. But there's policy in place within the department that forbids that. And there could be consequences for being vocal. And so therefore, um, one must remain muted. I don't work for the department. So I told my, my husband does. So I told my husband, this is, this is my journey. I'm going to take this and I'm going to run with it. And I know I'm just one person, but I'm going to start invoking change because this system is set up for failure. And it is not, it's set up for failure for families like myself. It, it is failing us. Where we find a system that is supposed to support us has become our largest adversary. And I am angry about that. That not only do I have to worry about keeping my husband alive, 
but I have to now fight a broken system that has taken away what my husband is entitled to. He gave 14 years as a police officer and he took care of, he helped take care of the city. It's time for the department to take care of my husband. And, I, and that's where we're going to end it because you have now joined the same fight that I've been fighting for the last three and a half, four years. That uh, this journey that you're on, uh, welcome to the battle because uh, it is a system that is that is broken, that is corrupt. Because uh, at the at the end of this at the end of the day, this all revolves around one thing. And that's money. Indeed. So I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show. I, I thank you. And I gladly um, joined this fight. And I know that my journey with this is not over. Um, there will be change. It may not be tomorrow, but there will be change ahead. Thank you. People often ask me, Malcolm, how do we fight the corruption? Robert Frost has said it best. Freedom lies in being bold. Well, for six incredible years, bold is America out loud. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's summertime. Ready for your vacation to the beach, the lake, or the mountains? But what about your accommodations? Ever wonder what germs were left behind by the previous guests? Kathy G. from Tulsa says the Genesis Fogger gives her peace of mind and confidence when traveling. With Genesis, she knows that the air and surfaces in her vacation rental are free of bacteria and viruses left behind by the previous occupants. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the pulpidone iodine-based nasal spray, Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. All right, so uh, we're going to continue with uh, our next guest. Um, this is... You know, I love to bring interesting people on board to uh, to tell you guys what is happening within the law enforcement world. And and this is a story that that 
um, when when my next guest explained it to me, I was unaware of the of this situation and the ramifications of it. So I'm going to bring in Charles Giplin. Charles, uh, can you uh, join us, please? Yes, sir. There he is. Okay, Charles Giplin is a retired uh, special agent in charge of the New Jersey Treasury Department. Uh, how many years did you do, Charles? Well, between being a municipal police officer, a college police officer, uh, my time on the board of directors of IACP, um, 46 years. Well, I say you paid your dues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and now, you, yeah. now you're involved in a, in a new fight. And uh, when you explained it to me, uh, I was completely unaware. So if you would, um, just explain uh, in, in the role that you are playing now, how you became involved in this situation and, and bring it to the attention of uh, the viewers. So my, you know, former organization, um, primary responsibility was um, not unlike a combination of ATF and IRS criminal. And one of the areas that we were involved in, and I was first involved in when I came on board was cigarette smuggling. Um, not only the smuggling, the hijacking, the counterfeiting of cigarettes and other tobacco products to look like American trademark products, um, counterfeiting the stamps, which is a uh, very heavy uh, loss of revenue to states and agencies and supports a number of criminal enterprises, organized crime, gangbangers, um, as well as terrorism funding opportunities that we've proven in a number of cases. So right now, we're seeing um, a move by the Food and Drug Administration, not by statute, not by congressional action, but by their own rulemaking authority. And those of you who've been in any law enforcement entity or government entity realize that many government agencies have rulemaking authority. And that rulemaking authority uh, sometimes gets a little out of hand. In this case, the rulemaking authority that's being exercised by the Food and Drug Administration of the federal government is to ban all flavored tobacco, meaning menthol tobacco, pipe tobacco, cigars, hookah, vape, etc., will all be included in this ban. So now, oh, that, well, hold, hold that, on, hold on a second, hold on a second. This is almost, this is very difficult to wrap your head around. That I get it. That the federal that the Federal Food and Drug Administration, which is a regulatory agency, uh, you right. know, that, that, that's supposed to keep us safe from salmonella and, <laughs> and yeah. you know, bad, bad foods, drugs. Yep. bad drugs, right. Being manufactured overseas. Yeah. Now, they do have a law enforcement entity within FDA, but their primary purpose has been, to my understanding, um, been involved in identifying drug shipments that were not manufactured under the right conditions, et cetera. Um, some other frauds involved with the drug industry, et cetera. So and now and now and now they are they are basically usurping what would be the lawful capacity of of Congress and also individual states and simply saying, you know what? We're gonna outlaw all this stuff. Yes. How is that how is that even possible? Well, apparently Congress gave them some type of rulemaking authority um, within the last few years. I think, in my own opinion, 
uh, that the, the uh, exercise of their authority goes beyond what was intended by Congress. But there's a buy-in with the health agencies. The health agencies, um, the um, organizations that are made up to push the health agenda uh, that are pushing a lot of this into um, reality. And you're talking about you're going to eliminate over 33%, maybe 36% of the tobacco industry here and the legitimate, the highly regulated, legitimate tobacco industry. For instance, in New Jersey, you have to get a license to sell tobacco. If you're a distributor, you get fingerprinted and photographed by the special agents of New Jersey Treasury. You get a background investigation done on you to eliminate the infiltration of organized crime and other unscrupulous um, business entities. So it's a very, across the country, it's a highly regulated industry. And across the, the states who are primarily focused on um, conducting the law enforcement operations when it comes to violations. And I, when we talk about violations, we talk about cross-border smuggling, which is the way most agencies see it today, um, or interstate smuggling. And that's primarily to avoid the taxes. One tax in, in, in Virginia is lower than New Jersey, and especially lower than New York. They're going to go to Virginia, pack up the van, pack up the station wagon, bring back that that uh, those lower taxed cigarettes back to their home states for sales to other people. That's unlawful. You come through New Jersey, if a state trooper or we stop you, you're talking about we're seizing your car, the product, your money in your possession, and we're arresting you. And it's all indictable offenses. So well, let, let me stop you there for a second. I just want to, yeah. I want, I, because this is this is a fairly complicated issue also. It is. Um, but I, I want to illustrate one story. When I was working as, as a police officer in New Jersey, I got involved with a, <laughs> a smuggled cigarette operation. And I did not know at the, at the time. At first, I, I kind of said, well, smuggling cigarettes? What's, what's this? <laughs> yeah. But then when, when the investigation continued, it turned out that this was a major operation that was funding terrorism. It was going to, it was going directly to our enemies overseas. So this that is correct. This is not some hey, you know, it's just a couple of bucks on cigarettes. Right. This is a real a real existential threat to our country. Yes, and realistically, we knew as we started to see this build, we assigned special agents to the Joint Terrorism Task Force um, to US Homeland Security HSI um, to be able to work um, from the state level with our federal counterparts more effectively. Um, and so what we expect to see now um, is the cross-border smuggling, um, which there's a great example in the state of Massachusetts just a year or so ago, banned all flavored tobacco like the federal government wants to do. They immediately saw uh, the effects of that by revenue drops of, of incredible millions of dollars of money to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. But what they saw was people going to the adjacent states, buying the product, bringing it back to Massachusetts, either for personal consumption or to sell to other people on the street or through businesses. So it's a common behavior. When you talk about eliminating 33% of a now legitimate product, 
uh, you're, you're opening up a whole new door to the black market, the illicit market, um, destroying what is a highly regulated industry and controls. And, and, and those, these very controls are responsible for lowering the youth smoking rate and the smoking rate across the country. Um, there's no question about that. The details are out there. People can look at the tax foundation uh, documents, can look at some of the other reports out there. There's even a report a couple of years ago under the Obama administration that the federal government did about the international smuggling of uh, tobacco. Um, and, and we expect that to fully gear up on a number of levels. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you there. Um, all right, we'll, we'll circle back to that. But yep. so you've been around a while. You haven't been around as long as this topic I'm going to bring up. But, Go ahead. <laughs> but historically, um, how did prohibition work out for us? Prohibition did not work out for us. And that's a perfect example. And an interesting thing is that the FDA is trying to mimic the prohibition law um, by not making individual possession illegal. So it would only be incumbent upon um, the manufacturers, the distributors, the retailers as a violation to sell or possess um, flavored tobacco. But the individual person, um, you'd be, uh, be free and clear. And that didn't work in prohibition, and it's not going to work now. All right. So I'm just trying to, it's trying to get your head around this. I, I see it as an immense power grab, an overreach by the government, which, of course, we've seen this government uh, under uh, under this presidential uh, leadership, quote unquote, uh, <laughs> we've seen uh, overreach in, in many regards. So watching yeah. this take place before our eyes and unfold is particularly disturbing for me. And, it, you know, what, when you when you when you think about the, how does this affect humans how does this affect the people i remember coming home from school and my dad would come home from work and he'd put on his slippers and he'd make himself a scotch and he would take that that pipe that was that was uh you know by the by the bar at the house fill it with a little cherry tobacco <laughs> and that's how he would relax and i remember the smell of that tobacco yeah. growing growing yeah. up so now the yep. government is saying, oh, no, 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 you can't do it. You can't do that. That makes me that that pisses me off, quite honestly. Well, I agree. I agree with you. I mean, I'm not a smoker and my um, mother passed away from lung cancer. I get it. But when you start to realize the connections, um, especially when we talk about counterfeit product, um, we, we believe from open source material that with the southern border of the United States, as porous as it is right now, we're seeing interests of China National Tobacco, which is the largest tobacco manufacturer in the world, is poised to take advantage of the southern border as soon as if these regulations go through. And we hope they won't go through. But if they do, we believe that China National Tobacco will be, along with their fentanyl, moving product into Paraguay and some of the Golden Triangle areas down there where there are factories already, okay? And they will move that product up through Mexico. We know that 
uh, China National Tobacco and other Chinese Communist Party interests are investing in the infrastructure along the southern border. We know that they are um, investing financially in those areas. And this is all open source. This is nothing that, you know, one of my former guys on JTTF told me. This is all open source that can be um, il illustrated. All right. Well, be before before we continue, I, I have to I have to acknowledge uh, the uh, sponsor of of this program. That's fine. All right. So, um, and this is this is also an officer safety issue. Uh, there is the 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 realities now facing law enforcement officers are that that uh, bad people know how to use this thing called the internet, and they know how to use it to find you and your family. And this is dangerous stuff. We have plenty of documented cases called doxing, where individual officers are targeted by Antifa and, and, and individuals who, who uh, want to make their lives miserable. And it's, I, it, it's shocking to me how much information is there on the Internet about us. And you can, you can find the cars that we drive. You can find out where we live. You can find out all kinds of information. So... Um, Pete James, uh, who is a retired cop, uh, came up with an idea. It's called OfficerPrivacy.com. And OfficerPrivacy.com, what they do is, and by the way, he only, there's only law enforcement, former law enforcement officers working for this company, all right? Uh, and what they do is they remove uh, information on the internet that can be used to find you, that can be used to dox you. And he, he makes it really inexpensive. It is absolutely worthwhile. I highly recommend it. And Pete is really committed to the law enforcement community um, and, and also helping out you know, police officers with jobs. So you got, in fact, um, he is now starting to bring on disabled officers uh, to, uh, to help them get through as well. So Pete James from officerprivacy.com, I, I urge you to check them out, um, use their services, and uh, you're gonna, you're, it, you, you, you need to do it for you if you're a police officer or have been a police officer, and also for your family, officerprivacy.com. So uh, Charles, come back in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would certainly endorse officerprivacy.com. We had one of our special agents get doxxed um, rather badly and some of our civilians. So uh, it's out there and it's a dangerous situation. Um, so I, so, so let's, let's, let's go back, let's go back. Because what you said should send a chill down the spine of every American. That the Chinese yeah, are preparing for, for taking full advantage of this insanity. And yes. once again, the Chinese who are, I gotta say it, a whole lot smarter than our government is, <laughs> Is yep. now is now poised to make millions upon millions more dollars Correct. that will Correct. fund their nefarious, uh, dangerous um, warfare program. So yes, how, and, and that's how, what's how, going on. So how that are you, is what's going on because there's a relationship between the Chinese uh, Communist Party, Russia, and North Korea, and the federal government has said that they have seen the money go to certain uh, weapons programs. And now we're going to we're going to give them billions of dollars more if this Correct. if this passes. And this is a this is, you know, a public safety issue because this is going to erode um, because we know that 
the majority of uh, flavored tobacco is consumed by minority communities, African-American, Asian, um, Indo-Pak um, communities are, are the bigger consumers of these products. So someone selling out of the back of their car looks no different than a narcotics transaction in some situations. And law enforcement's going to go in and ask questions and start to confront them. We don't want to have another Eric Gardner situation, unfortunate, unfortunate as that was, um, for selling you know tobacco on the street corner. But, but, the that, violence, but that inevitably, Charles, inevitably, that is what's going to happen. Exactly. And that's what, why we're bringing this out to our brothers and sisters in law enforcement by saying, you're going to see this. I mean, I spent the whole day down at DEA SOG um, in Chantilly, Virginia, a number of years ago. Um, with a full briefing on the connection between the traditional um, narcotics trafficking groups utilizing tobacco as a cover and utilizing it as an extra money maker, um, both go going both ways on the borders. So we have to be aware uh, with with the um, movement of counterfeit products, with or without stamps. Okay, because you can get on the internet now and open up a you know, order a 40-foot container and say, I want um, Marlboros or I want uh, Salem's and I want New Jersey stamps on them or New York City stamps on them. It's as easy as that. So so, so that smuggling operation uh, that's already in place and making millions and millions of dollars, now we're going to exacerbate it and we're going to add all these other products to it. And then, right. so here's what here's the schizophrenia that, that is so clear to me. So... There's, there are areas now in law enforcement, uh, Chicago being one of them, Los Angeles area being one of them, where they don't even want the police enforcing traffic laws because they don't want the police to be interacting. And then because of what happens, uh, something, uh, you know, uh, uh, be becomes blown out of proportion, there's a use of force, and then the, 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 the city's council people go insane, <laughs> and, they came, and they come up with more regulations against law enforcement. Well, here's what's happening, here's what you're forecasting, which is absolutely true, that now they're gonna put a system into place that is going to uh, force more and more interactions, negative interactions, right. which right. are going to lead to, to more and more uh, encounters with the police, which are going to turn bad. That's the unfortunate reality of it. And then you get to the point of saying, well, the federal government's not going to enforce this. ATF gets their tax money at the warehouse. They don't get it, you know, on the, at the state level. And um, that's why they've not been really involved in this um, like they used to be in the 70s and the 80s. But nonetheless, um, one of the organizations that can help stop the, the uh, infiltration of, of product into the United States is Homeland Security's uh, HSI, CBP. Um, and we have great partnerships with them in New Jersey, as well as the Postal Inspection Service. But again, I'd rather them stop fentanyl so my grandchildren are not affected by this um, than I'm worried about tobacco. And, and the FDA, like you brought up before, the FDA is getting carried away with themselves. They're now contemplating a whole new system of regulating how much nicotine um, is, is in a product that's sold. 
So they may come up with a new very low nicotine standard, which will totally change that marketplace around and create a whole nother nightmare, um, all based on presumptions of what health um, standards are. So I want to dis- yes, get back to the Chinese for a minute. <laughs> Go ahead. So there is absolutely no doubt every everybody with half a brain now knows that the Chinese are purposefully poisoning Americans. Fentanyl is not here by accident. Fentanyl isn't being smuggled into the country in in levels that have never been seen before by by happenstance, all right? The the Chinese government is working in concert with the Mexican uh, drug cartels to poison the people of America. We had over 100,000 deaths last year, which are being virtually ignored by the Biden administration. Correct. The, and these aren't overdoses. When we think of an overdose, we think of a junkie. It's a poisoning. Who, right. It's a poisoning. And and, and still, in, in much of the mainstream media, you hear the term overdose, overdose. Well, it's not an overdose. It's a poisoning. What is right. to... So I, I want to extrapolate this for just, a, just a moment here. So if the Chinese are already building warehouses, they are already putting infrastructure in place to smuggle more and more of this, quote, harmless product, unquote, of flavored tobacco or menthol tobacco into the United States. What in God's name is going to stop them from lacing this with fentanyl and killing hundreds of thousands of Americans? Uh, The the example is already available where um, in the in, in Canada, they banned all flavored tobacco just a couple of years ago. And on their First Nation uh, reservations, um, they have their own manufacturing, uh, tobacco manufacturing facilities. We know from cases that we worked with RCMP um, and Revenue Canada that the um, First Nations make two types of cigarettes, Rollies and Whites. And one is laced with uh, tetrahydrocannabinol, the other is just a plain old cigarette. And they're discernible by their particular logo on them or colored band on them. And they're sold in different um, communities as either um, plain cigarettes or they're marijuana-laced cigarettes. So the the, pro- the concept is there. Um, we even know that there were cases where in the Carolinas we had tobacco growers smuggling whole leaf tobacco up into Canada to support those operations. So you already see the example and you have extrapolated it into the fentanyl um, issue. And that's the scary, scary part. Well, so the the incompetence uh, and and power grab of a major federal agency, the FDA, um, is literally opening the doors for an avalanche of more deaths and more uh, uh, criminal enterprise uh, through this through this nanny state kind of thinking. Well, well, people can't make up their own minds about what they're going to put into their bodies, and yet you. Yeah, have, yeah. But wait a minute, hold on a second. Didn't the state of Washington just say, you know what, we're gonna we're we're going to decriminalize yeah. heroin and methamphetamine? But we're going to ban tobacco, right? What? And guess who? Guess who's involved at the southern border besides the Chinese? 
The New Jalisco Cartel, which is one of the most violent gangs at the, in Mexico, all right, they're the ones that you saw on TV where the guy was eating the heart of one of their rival gang members. They are That's setting appetizing. Up, mm -hmm. Yeah, they're <laughs> setting up a whole new um, cartel, tobacco cartel, where they've essentially infiltrated and taken over um, the legitimate tobacco industry in the um, uh, Mexican uh, communities below our border. And it's old La Costa Nostra organized crime techniques. You will buy from us. You will we'll supply you. We'll protect you. And um, you will, you know, work under our auspices um, and you'll get your cut. That sets up a whole nother layer of, of involvement with the new Jalisco cartel, who's known for narcotics trafficking, to utilize tobacco as part of their pathway. Wow. You know, uh, you're, you are sounding a major alarm here. What can the people who are listening to and watching this show, because this isn't, this isn't just a, this isn't a police problem. This is no. It's not just a police problem. This is a problem for our country, and yes. and literally, their lawmakers can. How do we stop this? Well, there was an invitation to law enforcement, albeit I'm not sure how it came about from the FDA to say we'd like to hear law enforcement's uh, comments, but the uh, period to comment was very short and um, didn't work well. Suffice to say that now. It's, it's up to um, communities to say, let's question the, the health benefits here, number one, because they're not going to ban other uh, cigarettes or tobacco um, or vape. We're, we, we need to talk to our legislators, our federal representatives, Senate and Congress, and say, hey, you need to evaluate what the FDA is doing here, um, put a hold to this, and in reality, look at who's going to enforce this if it ever was to pass, um, because you're putting an unfunded mandate on uh, state and local law enforcement because the feds ain't going to do it. And you, you need to do this now because FDA has been moving too quickly um, without sufficient input. They met with all the health agencies, but they didn't meet with the law enforcement agencies across the country. Of course they not. Didn't sit down with the FOP, they didn't sit down with the IACP, they didn't say what would be the impact of this, bring bring this to our attention. But they had all of the, and, and I'll give one organization. Well, I, actually, I'm, I'm gonna have to stop there because we're running out of time. But, okay. but um, folks, contact your senators. Let them know, yes. let them, it's time to put the pressure on these these people. And Charles, yes. thank you so much for coming on the show and thank bringing this to, to our attention. I really appreciate okay. it. Thanks, you're, fight, you're fighting a good fight. All right. Be safe, brother. Thank you. All right. We're, uh, we're, um, we're running out a little bit of time before I get into what we call end of watch. But I want to bring your attention to the organization called the Wounded Blue. Um, yesterday, I was, uh, I was advised that three... Police officers in the uh, in Wayne County, North Carolina, were serving a uh, um, a commitment paper on a on a mental subject, and they came under fire. Three of the officers were shot, and today one of them died. 
Um, this is three more officers being shot. The injuries of officers that are taking place across this country is unbelievable. Literally almost every other day, a police officer is being shot. Then you add on to that all the other injuries, the COVID problems, the traffic accidents. Cops are getting severely injured every single day in America. And many of these men and women are maltreated, mistreated, or not treated at all. And that's why my organization, The Wounded Blue, exists. We are a nationwide charity made up of police officers, all who have been shot, stabbed, beaten, run over, screwed up and screwed over. We need your help. These men and women who are sacrificing so much are heroes, but they need heroes like you to help them. I urge you to go to thewoundedblue.org. That's the website. Hit that donate button. Give what you can. There, we have a great documentary film that's also available on the website. I urge you to watch it and bring your tissues because you're not going to believe what you see when you see how cops are treated throughout the country. I ask for your help, thewoundedblue.org. If you are a law enforcement officer or have been, we are giving a major conference October 11th through the 14th the second annual National Law Enforcement Survival Summit. Every aspect about surviving a law enforcement career, physically, tactically, emotionally, psychologically, relationships. This is probably the most important training you will ever get. It can save your life. It can change your life. There's scholarship opportunities available if you can't afford it, even though it's only 295 bucks. Four days plus, we're gonna have some fun as well. So come see me at, in Terre Haute, Indiana, for the second annual National Law Enforcement Survival Summit, go to thewoundedblue.org and sign up right now. If you know a cop, tell them about it. If you love a cop, sign them up. So once again, thewoundedblue.org, we ask for your help. The way I end this show is, is memorializing police officers who have made the ultimate sacrifice. We call it end of watch. The first that I have to read, Deputy Sheriff Lorenzo Busto, Smith County Sheriff's Office, Texas. Deputy Sheriff Lorenzo Bustos was struck and killed by a drunk driver at 1250 while making a traffic stop. He and his field training officer had conducted a traffic stop shortly before midnight, had taken two occupants of the vehicle into custody. While they were completing their investigation, uh, the uh, officer was stood behind his patrol vehicle. Another vehicle hit that patrol vehicle. Deputy Bustos was transported to a hospital where he succumbed. The driver who struck him was charged with intoxication. Deputy Sheriff Lorenzo Busto, Smith County Sheriff's Office, Texas. End of watch, Friday, July 29th, 2022. Mounted Deputy Nicole Schuff, Clare County Sheriff's Department, Michigan. Mounted Deputy Nicole Schuff succumbed to injuries sustained four days earlier when the horse that she was riding fell as responded to a medical call at the Clare County Fair. She was getting off her horse to render aid to the citizen when the horse suddenly lost its footing and fell back. Deputy Schuff suffered a serious head injury as a result. She was left on life support so her organs could be donated. Mounted Deputy Nicole Schuff, Clare County Sheriff's Department, Michigan. End of watch Friday, July 29th, 2022. Deputy Sheriff 2, Jamie Reynolds, Spalding County Sheriff's Office, Georgia. Deputy Sheriff Jamie Reynolds was killed when a large pine tree fell onto his patrol car. The tree crushed the passenger cabin of the vehicle, killing Deputy Reynolds instantly. He had served with Spalding County Sheriff's Office for two years, has served with the Forest Park Police for 25 years. Deputy Sheriff 2 Jamie Reynolds, 
Spalding County Sheriff's Office, Georgia, end of watch Sunday, July 31st, 2022. And police officer Noah Chanavez, Elwood Police Department, Indiana. Indiana. Police officer Noah Chanavez was shot and killed while making a traffic stop. The driver of the vehicle he stopped exited his car and opened fire on Officer Chanavez before fleeing in his car. The man then led other officers on a pursuit after he was located in Hamilton County. The subject continued to fire at officers during the pursuit until Fisher's police conducted a pit maneuver. Officer Chanavez was transported to a local hospital and then flown to a hospital in Indianapolis where he succumbed. The subject who shot him was a convicted felon who had been previously convicted of shooting at police officers in Indianapolis. He was charged with murder and other charges after murdering Officer Chanavez. Officer Chanavez was a U.S. Army veteran, served with the Elwood Police Department for just 11 months. He is survived by his parents and siblings. Police Officer Noah Chanavez, Elwood Police Department, Indianapolis, Indiana, excuse me, end of watch Sunday, July 31st, 2022. Each of these men and women gave their lives in the line of duty, serving their communities. I want to thank you for taking the time to watch or listen to the Voice for American Law Enforcement. I'm your host, Randy Sutton. You can contact me, randy at thewoundedblue.org. If you are a business owner and you want to support and sponsor the uh, Law Enforcement Survival Summit and the Wounded Blue, please connect with me personally, randy at thewoundedblue.org. Follow us on Facebook under The Wounded Blue and uh, also the Voice for American Law Enforcement. I also urge you to go to this website. You ready? Get your pen. Rescuing911.org. And there you, you will see my new book, and you can sign up to be notified when it comes out, probably in a couple of months. Thousands of people have already signed up, and I thank you for doing that. And, uh, of course, thewoundedblue.org, because these heroes need a hero like you. Thank you so much for joining me today here on The Voice for American Law Enforcement.